Welcome to the Richardson Seventh-day Adventist Podcast. I'm so excited for you to join us. Each week, we'll bring you a sermon from one of our ongoing series. This week, we begin with the first sermon that's part of our amazing series called Game Changer. It's a term that you often hear associated with sports, but it really applies to everything or anything. So enjoy, and let's get to it. A game changer is a person, an event, an idea, or a procedure that causes a radical and significant shift in the current manner of thinking about or doing something. I'm going to put a picture on the screen here, and I I want to see if anybody is old enough to recognize this. How many of you here remember this? Okay, okay. Now, now most, yeah, look at, look at all, I I see everybody that's under 30 is like, what? What's that? So this is when the early days of personal computing was happening, you know, and and, and to communicate with a computer, to control it, you had to use MS-DOS, right? And, And you're texting out, you know, you're typing these text commands, and, and this is the kind of stuff that you would see on the screen. No wonder everybody was freaked out about computers, right? I mean, look at that gobbledygook that you got to try to make sense of. Then came along somebody by the name of Steve Jobs, who invented the Mac. And the Mac had a new operating system. It didn't use DOS. It was Mac OS, and it used Windows. It used intuitive icons that all you had to do was a picture, was an icon, and you would click on it, and it intuitive, you knew what that picture would do, and you would click on it, and it would do what you needed it to do. That was a game changer. Now, of course, Microsoft quickly had to copy that and go on from there. But then jump forward, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years, I'm not sure on the timeline, but Apple introduced another game changer. Now, most everybody here will probably recognize this. What's that? iPod, that's right. Now, of course, even iPods are going the way of the dodo bird, but at the time, it was another game changer because it revolutionized the way in which music was purchased and consumed. Now, although other companies had launched MP3 players prior and kind of beat Apple to that, Apple's iPod was so pretty and sleek and and again intuitive and and most importantly it had a platform a music platform called itunes that came along with it that virtually dictated how music was going to be distributed around the world going forward in the industry and then another 10 years goes by about another 10 years and apple does it again this time with what that's right the iphone And we all know about that. Game changers are disruptive. Game changers may be even sometimes crazy, but what is sure is that the world is never the same again. They change it radically and forever. 
Now, with all the, the noise around us and the media and the technology and, and everything that's screaming at us for attention, our attention and absorbing our minds and distracting us, probably many of us have not, may not have thought about this, but 2,000 years ago, a quiet Galilean carpenter arrived on the landscape of Earth's history. He was a game changer. He told stories that radically shifted the current manner of thinking and doing things. And so we're beginning a sermon series called Game Changers, The Goat in Your Story. It's a series that looks at the stories that Jesus told and how they connect with our stories today. It's going to look at how, uh, how they changed the game in Jesus' world and how they're still changing the game in our world today. And that's what really excites me about it is because these are not stories that are just 2,000 years ago relevant. No, they're relevant even right now and they're changing the game in the story of our own personal experiences. I've entitled, as I said, the opening message, Shake Up. This is not a shakedown. This is a shake-up. And that's because what Jesus did when He started telling the stories was He shook up the worn-out religious system of His day. And maybe we need a shake-up today. Get ready over the next several weeks because I'm praying and your pastoral staff is praying that the Holy Spirit is going to do something through these stories to change the game in our lives, personally, and in our church. Please pray with me. Father in Heaven, every time I begin to pick up Your Word to share it with Your people, I'm so humbled and so awed this awesome book, this, this inspired record of Your heart and Your thoughts toward us. And God, I'm just a broken human person. So unworthy. And yet here I stand. And I just pray, dear God, that You will do something marvelous. You'll begin to change the game through the power of Jesus Christ and the stories He told as they connect with our stories. Thanks for hearing this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Uh, Matthew and Mark also tell these stories, but I want to look at them from, from the Gospel of Luke today. We'll bring in things that Matthew and Mark mention as we go. But this passage of, of seven short verses contains, at least as I've been able to identify it going through the Gospels, the very first recorded parables of Jesus. Now, a parable is what people of Jesus' day in New Testament times called a story with a lesson. But don't tune out because you think, oh, he's going to talk about stories from 2,000 years ago. Don't tune out because the stories Jesus told were radical. They challenged the cultural norms of the day. They shook up the rituals and the traditions that the scribes and Pharisees had taught people. And they liberated the people from the narrow-minded thinking that had been imposed upon them. 
They were game changers then, and these stories are nonetheless game changers today. Luke chapter 5 and verse 33. Now understand that when they come with this question, Jesus has already been doing some radical things. He's just finished calling Levi Matthew a tax collector, a pariah of their society. He's just called him to be one of his followers, a disciple. And then they... And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The first big idea that we come to in this passage as we look at it is that Jesus' kingdom brings new joy. Why? Because Jesus Himself is with us. See, the He... He's the Messiah. He is what everybody was excited about and looking forward to. And it brings joy. Now see, the question about fasting here is really kind of interesting because one of the things that the rabbis had made sort of a test or a a barometer of your piety and and how spiritual you were was fasting. That's why if you get over to Luke chapter 18, you remember the story about the the two guys that went to pray on on the street corner, the Pharisee and and the publican, you know, and the Pharisee was all up there in his robes and making sure everybody blew the trumpet, make sure everybody's watching and he's praying. And then the, and the Pharisee in his prayer, he says something interesting. He says, God, I fast twice a week. Now, do you know where that came from, folks? You see, they had developed a practice of fasting on Monday and on Thursday. And and most likely Jewish tradition indicates that where that came from was way back in the Old Testament when God was bringing His people Israel out of Egypt. And and Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he was up there and it says he fasted for 40 days. You remember that? Well, what, what, what what they believe is that when Moses went up, he began his fast on a Thursday and he ended it 40 days later on a Monday. And, and so they had picked those days and they also decided that since Sabbath was a day of celebration and gladness and joy, they didn't want to be fasting and mourning. And so, so they tried to keep their fasting days as far away from the Sabbath as possible, but not too close together because they wanted some food in between. And so it was Monday and Thursday for their fasting days. But it had become a way of earning spiritual brownie points and showing off how pious you were. Jesus came along and Jesus changed the game. When He asked, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He was basically saying, I'm the bridegroom. Messiah has arrived. The game has changed. This is not a time to fast right now. There will come that time. And so what's the point? One of the things that I want to help us realize as we look at this is that Jesus is telling us that we should not do things merely from ritual or tradition. It is never valid to do anything just because that's the way it's always been done or just because that's the way everybody always does it. Never a valid reason. Unless we have, dear friends, a clear thus says the Lord in God's Word, there are a lot of things that are up for grabs. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit here. 
I'm going to give you an example. When we come together, we experience this every Sabbath. There's a lot of things up for grabs, one of them being the order of the worship service. Now, the minute you go there, my goodness, that came down, that was spoken with the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Don't mess with that. Don't touch that, right? I mean, we're talking, we're starting to walk on sacred ground here, and, and churches get into all kinds of controversy and arguments over the worship service, folks. And, and by the way, you know what? I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to talk about this for a minute here. Why cannot we, I mean, Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. The kingdom of Jesus brings a new joy. Why do we think worship should be all? You see, people somehow think that reverence and silence are synonyms. Silence and, and, and seriousness and solemnness is not the definition of reverence, dear friends. If you study this in the Bible, and I'm going to go way off the beaten track here right now, it's not even in my... If you study this in the Bible, you will find out that reverence, it might be silence, but it might be yelling too. It might be, because you find that in the Bible. And while I'm talking about it, Jesus is here. If we believe Jesus is here, why aren't we a little bit excited about that? Why isn't there a little bit? He said, how can you fast when the bridegroom is here? Matthew and Mark, when they're talking about this, they say, mourn. They even add mourn. You know, when the bridegroom, how can you mourn? You see, dear friends, it's the height in the Jewish culture to fast when the bridegroom was there. That was fast and mourn. And you know, one of the things that boggles my mind, and I haven't figured this out, it, it really is something that's beyond me. How can we be such a multicultural congregation and worship like Quakers? I mean, folks, it's like, you know, if anybody puts up their hand, hallelujah. Oh, no. Anybody wants to say praise the Lord? No, you got to sit in silence. Make no response. You, you know, I don't have this quote right here, and it's not even in my sermon, but I'm just getting off there. Because the bridegroom is here, and we should not do things merely from ritual or tradition. But I think it's in Testimonies, Volume 5. I can find it if you want to have an argument with me later. But basically, this is what she's talking about. She's saying, shame on us Christians. Why would unbelievers, when they walk in and watch the way we worship, why would they ever want to become a part of something that dead and lifeless? She said, how can we come up on here in the church when we're here to worship the God of the universe who redeemed us, who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who picked us up from the pit, who lavished his grace and love upon us and gave us a future and a hope. How can we come up on up here in the sanctuary and sit here? And she says, you know, you come and you sit. This is quoting now. You sit in drowsy indifference, making no response to what is said, staring around, counting the knot holes in the, uh, in the wood finishing on the ceiling. She says, when worldlings, unbelievers, they'll go down to the baseball game or the football game and they'll scream their lungs out. She says, the example we give unbelievers is anything but positive for the religion of Jesus Christ. 
because we are so passionless. Have mercy is right. You know what? I, I, I'm, I should have done a, a series on worship, right? Maybe that will come next. But do you know what in the Bible, when people worshiped, there were times when they were quiet and they were bowed down with their head on the ground. But do you know what? There were times when the people worshiped and they were standing and jumping and shouting for joy. And, and there were times when their heads were bowed and their hands were folded. And there were times when their hands were up and their faces uplifted to the Lord. And it all happened within the context of being in the sanctuary, worshiping God. There is not one prescribed way. And dear friends, it's not a sin if you want to express yourself emotionally in a worship service. Hallelujah. Amen. It's time we let a little bit of our, our culture and our, our diversity and our passion show up, dear friends. Do you know how hard it is for preachers to come and preach to a cemetery every week, week after week? <laughs> All right, I'll, I promise I'll get back to my notes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Where am I here? Yeah. Oh, well, while I'm meddling, so we talked about the order of service is not sacred. Now, there's nothing wrong with the order we have, but it's not necessarily sacred, and it's not wrong to maybe think about changing it. More on that later. Now, what about the songs that we sing? Oh, my goodness. Just because young people want something different doesn't mean it's wrong. Let me ask you a question. When you were young, did you want something different than your parents? It was okay then, right? But now it's wrong because your young people want something... Come on, folks. No, 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 no. Just because we're used to something and like it doesn't mean it's right or that it's best. It doesn't mean it's wrong either. But it doesn't mean it's the only way we can do things, dear friends. In fact, Jesus' presence requires a new response. That's why he said, when the bridegroom is with them, can the friends of the bride, can they fast? No, we can't do things just as normal. We can't behave in that way. In fact, as I said, to fast when the bridegroom is there, to fast and mourn, that's the height of insult. When the bridegroom is there and he's present, you celebrate and you revel in the joy of the moment, and it's okay. Now, does that mean that you should never fast? Of course not. It just means that there's an appropriate time for everything. And when the wedding is on, be joyful, honor the bride, honor the groom with happiness. And when the wedding is over, there'll be plenty of time to fast. So let's remember to be joyful, dear friends. All this serious and quiet and solemn worship does not honor Jesus. It doesn't. Where's the joy? If we really believe that God has redeemed us, where is the joy of the Lord? Where is the expressiveness? Why don't you people loosen up a little bit? Please. You know, I think a lot of people are looking for that. I think people are out there that are tired of what's out there in the world. They're looking for something with some real joy. 
And I think they come to church and they see everybody sitting there like it's a funeral. Why would they want to ever be a part of that? Jesus shook up the Pharisees. And maybe He's trying to do that for us too. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that we go off the rails and throw the Bible out the window and don't let its boundaries and its parameters guide us. Of course we stay faithful to the Word of God, but there's a lot of room in there, folks. So let's continue. I, I can already hear the emails and, and the <laughs> coming. <laughs> and the conversation around lunch. Lunch will be on hold. The pastor will be the menu item. Verse 36, Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece of new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. You see, not only does Jesus' kingdom bring new joy, Jesus' kingdom also brings new structures. He's comparing, Jesus here, the structure of Judaism to an old garment and the structure of His kingdom to a new piece of cloth. And there are several insights that we gain here. First of all, although the old has served well, it gets worn out. Now here's where I want us to understand something. We tend to go to extremes. Many times when we see the old, particularly if we're younger, we automatically think negatively of it. And we start to boo on it and diss on it and oh, blah, 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 blah. But let's remember something. That it had a function and it had a purpose and it served well and it met a need for a long period of time. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's bad and not good. And so let's respect that and let's value that while at the same time recognizing the principle that everything gets old and wears out and has to be freshened up or sometimes replaced. Now, this is not my crusade. You might think different. This is not my crusade. But again, an easy example for us all to relate to is the worship service. We came up with a good order of worship service. I don't know how many years ago it was here. John Petchkrow might know. He's been here since creation, he and Sharon. But, but you know, it, we've had this for a long time, and it was great, and, and it was a blessing, and, and we enjoyed it, and, and, and it ministered to us. But with any good thing, after you do it over and over again, what happens, folks? It becomes a familiar routine. We take it for granted. It becomes a mere ritual. Honestly, I heard somebody say this in the first service, it gets boring. It gets old and boring and it doesn't meet people's needs or grab their interest after a while. It served well. Yes, it did. But is it okay for us to say, hey, let's change the game up a little bit? Let's maybe do something that might meet some more needs now, that might serve well now? Second of all, the new is incompatible with the old. Jesus said you can't put 
a patch of new cloth on an old garment to try to fix it, it doesn't work. Now, I can understand this. Most of us guys, it's probably guys more than women because I know women love changing their clothes. They love the next new thing. But guys, we love the old thing from 40 years ago. I mean, we wear our clothes until there isn't a thread left to wear, right? And, and we want our wives to, and, and I've done this. I have my favorite pair of pants. And, and, you know, and I wear them and I wear them and they start to wear out and they're getting thin and pretty soon the threads just, you know, start to come apart. And so there's this little, little tear and I ask my wife, you know, can you please patch this? Now she's a smart lady and so she says, honey, you know, I, I, I don't think that's really going to work because they're so worn out. But no, no, it'll work. I know I want my, I want to wear my pants. So I ask her to put the patch on it. And she puts that new patch on it. And guess what? Next time I put my pants on, instead of a little tear, my whole knee is sticking out of it. Why? Because the new piece was all nice and strong and the old, and when I ripped it apart, doesn't work. And what Jesus is saying, in a loving way, he's trying to tell his people of the folly of attempting to patch the old garment of Judaism with the new fabric of his kingdom. Why? Not that Judaism in and of itself was bad or wrong. No, that was God's original intention when he brought Abraham and Isaac and gave them the covenant promises. That's what he started with. But unfortunately, the original spirit of Judaism God had invested it with at the beginning had been lost by the majority of its followers and its life-giving principles had been replaced by forms and rituals and empty ceremonies. And I want us to think about that in our context today. Is the Holy Spirit wanting to do a new work among us that is incompatible with what we're so used to doing and what, with what we're so comfortable with? Now, I want to put your mind at ease. I don't have any specific thing to talk to you about on that point. I don't have any, you know, insight or special revelation, a specific example. But I can tell you this, that thought is lingering in my mind. I can tell you that that thought never goes very far away. I keep on praying in prayer. I'm asking myself, Lord, are we so stuck in our Laodicean stupor that we can't see what your Holy Spirit is really wanting to do with us and in us and through us. It lingers in my mind and it kind of bothers me. It's, it's never too far away. And I hope you'll join me in the prayer of saying, God, what, what is it? Maybe open our eyes, God. Anoint them with eye salve so that we can see. And last of, uh, last of all, trying to mix the new with the old makes the problem worse. When you read this same story in both Matthew and Mark, they talk about the new cloth only making the tear of the old garment worse like I described in that little story earlier. The implication here is 
that you have to let the old garment go as much as you love it, as much as you wore it and you have all these wonderful memories with it and, and, and emotion attached up with it. You have to let it go and you have to go with a completely new one. And dear friends, we have a very strong basis for being open to doing that very thing here. Congregation was. You can see it right on the screen, right on the banner up there. I hope you have it memorized by now. We're a growing family doing what? Risking everything in Christ. I'm not talking about forsaking what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian waiting for Jesus to come. I'm not talking about what it means. I'm not talking about throwing the Bible out and forgetting boundaries and just going along with pop culture. Oh no, because it says risking everything in Christ. We have the boundaries of the Bible, but there is room within those boundaries. And are we, are we just going to let this be words on a banner or are we going to actually put it into practice? That's the question for us. Are we going to take some risks? Are we going to allow the new to flourish and give God the room to do a new work? Listen to this. The desire of ages. Nor could the principles of Christ's teaching be united with the forms of Phariseeism. Christ was not to close up the breach that had been made by the teachings of John. He would make what? More distinct the separation between the old and the new. And I believe that God is calling us to be open to that same principle today. This is a shake-up. When I look at the words of Jesus... To the people of his day, I hear him talking to me. I hear him talking to us. I hear him challenging the things that I'm comfortable with and that I don't want to change. And I hear him saying, go back and what is the principle in Scripture and don't just say that a tradition or something you always do is what the Bible necessarily says and that it couldn't be done another way. This is a call to humbly and prayerfully allow the Holy Spirit to change the game for us. And so Jesus' kingdom brings new joy. It brings new structures. And last of all, Jesus' kingdom brings new teachings. Let's go on to the last few verses, 37 through 39. Jesus switches from talk about clothing to talk about wine and wineskins to make his last point. Notice verse 37 and following. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. When you trace the symbol of wine throughout the Bible, you learn that it represents a set of teachings. Now, they're not always good teachings. In, in the book of Revelation, you have the wine of, of Babylon, right? That seduces and intoxicates people, and that's false teachings. That's really bad. But here in the Gospel, Jesus is talking and is using wine to refer to His own teachings. And notice that He calls them new wine, right? New wine. 
In other words, Jesus' teachings are new and fresh and liberating. And I think it's appropriate that just as we've celebrated the 4th of July in honor of liberty and, and freedom, I think it's appropriate for us to note that Jesus is setting the stage for freeing people from slavery, not only to the dead forms of the Pharisees, but slavery to sin. Jesus is talking about the fact that he came to change the game, that he came to deliver, and he came to pour out his grace in a way that could change our lives and set us on higher ground and in a better place to live as God created us to live in the first place. They're new. But by the way, this may seem contradictory for me to say this now because the new wine sounds like new things, but I want to just point out to you that it's important to really note that Jesus' teachings were really not new. They were really just restoring the original truth that God had given His people in the first place, which they had lost sight of because of all their rituals and traditions and man-made ceremonies that impinged upon them. And I just want to say today that if you are feeling bound up in your life by something, I don't know what it is, and it doesn't matter to me what it is, could be anything, but if you are feeling bound up in your life by something, Jesus and His teachings can be your game changer. He can liberate you. Hallelujah. And not only can He do it, He wants to do it. He's anxious to do it. He's waiting for you to let him come into your life and do that. He wants to change the narrative in your life. He wants to make it rich and deep and whole instead of cheap and shallow and broken. He wants to be the goat in your story. Now you remember the, the series sermon, Game Changers, the goat, G-O-A-T, in your story, and you're like, well, what on earth is that? Well, you see, if you're from an older generation, the term goat probably has a negative meaning for you. You see, and, and you know, older generation, I, 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 I always think of myself as a younger generation, but I know all the younger generations, like, pastor, you think you're a younger generation? You don't have any hair left on your head. You're not a young... I, I'm, I'm trying to straddle two generations right now, right? Okay, however. But if you're from an older generation, you probably it probably has a negative meaning because goat used to mean that you were a failure. Goat used to mean that you were the problem, that you were the one who messed it up, that, that you were the one who was picked on and blamed and, and you had a great opportunity. You got this great pass, but you dropped it. You know, you blew it. You could have won the game, but if you were a goat, it was a really bad thing. You did not want to be the goat. But if you're from a younger generation, you want to be the goat. Why? Because now it means G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. It means that whatever your field, you are the greatest person in that field who ever lived. No one even comes close to you. You are the GOAT, the greatest of all time. That's if you're in the younger generation. And as I was kind of looking this and researching about it, I, I came across, you know, let's talk about basketball. Who's the GOAT in basketball? Jordan, Michael Jordan, right? Everybody knows that, even 20 years later. 
And I mean, they were talking about this one. It was, it was the NBA Finals, and I don't know if it, what game it was, six or seven or whatever. And, and they're talking about the, 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 the genius of Michael Jordan, how he would just create on the fly. And, and why did they call him Air Jordan? I mean, did he have some kind of like this, you know, suspension system that just held him up in the air for inordinate amounts of time that no normal human could even approach? He did. And they were talking about, he, they were talking about, you know, he, he got the pass from, from the Chicago Bulls forward, and I forget the guy's name, but he said he, he saw this open lane to the basket. And so he's driving in the basket, and he's going to make this slam dunk, and he's got the ball palmed in his right hand, and, you know, he launches from like, this might be an exaggeration, but he, he launches into his jump from, from like the, the midcourt line, right? And he's flying through the air, and he's ready to do this dump, and the ball's in his right hand. And, and all of a sudden, he sees the long arms of this one defender on the other team coming, and it's getting ready to bat the ball. Without even thinking, in, in a split second, you can already see it happen. Switches the ball to his left hand and does the slam dunk in midair with his left hand. And he's not even left-handed, and they're like, where did that come from? We've never seen anything like that before. Goat. You see, in the younger generations, it's the greatest of all time. But here's the thing that I love in this sermon series. Do you know something? Both meanings for the word goat are in play in this sermon series. Because you see, in our stories, you and I are way too often the goat, aren't we? We're the failures. We're the ones who've made bad choices or messed things up. We're the one who maybe was an innocent victim of something we had nothing to do with, but it's left its mark upon us. And so we're the goat in the way that older generations think of it. But you see, Jesus wants to become part of our stories, and Jesus is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time, and He can change your story radically. He can redeem that thing, and He can turn where they stored the wine. They were literally the skins of sheep or goats, and what they did was they took those skins, they sewed the legs all up, and then they used the neck of the animal, the skin, they used that as the mouth of the bottle. And they were a great way. And what Jesus was trying to help the people of His day understand is that that was the condition of Judaism when He arrived. Because as good as it had been, and as much as God had used it and wanted to still be in it, unfortunately, it had become dry and it become hard and unchangeable and unadaptable. It was not that way because of God. It was that way because of man. I think I have my slides messed up a little bit here, but I'm going to show you. Okay, here we go. You see... Here's how Ellen White described it. Priests and scribes and rulers were fixed in a rut of ceremonies and traditions. While they remained satisfied with a legal religion, it was impossible for them to become the depositories of the living truth of heaven. And, and dear friends, there's a lesson there for us and we need to heed that. I believe we face the same warning and issue today. Religions often become dry and brittle, unfortunately, and it's not God's fault. It's our fault. 
But I don't want us to be like the scribes and the Pharisees that were so wrapped up in their traditions that they couldn't separate the truth of the Bible and the principles of God's Word from the traditions that they, that they thought were the Word of God but were only expressions of the principle. And here's the challenge for us. As generations come and go, we all tend to lose the original passion and joy and love of the truth that the early discoverers had, right? Generations, later generations, begin to take things for granted. And their religion becomes simply facts in their head instead of a passion and an experience in their heart. And they're no longer doing things because they have this love relationship with Jesus and it's growing out of that. They're doing things because that's how they were told when they were a kid and that's how they were brought up and there's no joy in it. Now, it doesn't mean the things they're doing is wrong, but they don't have the right heart and they don't have the right motivation and therefore they want to rebel against it and they want to get free of it because they don't understand where it came from and why and that's and they're looking elsewhere for joy and that's the challenge we face in Adventism today. We're generations removed from the passion and the joy of the beginning of our movement and way too many of us are just going through the dry motions. But Jesus wants to change that. Jesus wants to restore to us the joy and passion that began this movement. It's a joy and a passion in the message that never changes. The methods can change. The message can't. And that's so important because another lesson is that a new experience in a dry religion ruins both. Jesus said if you put new wine in old wineskins, the new wine bursts the old dry skins and it gets spilled and wasted and the old skins are destroyed in the process. And so you lose everything. You lose the new experience and you lose the old form and it's all blown up and falls apart. Jesus' revolutionary teachings brought a new experience to life for the people of his day which could not be reconciled with the dogmas of Judaism. And today we run the same risk. We have to be willing to ask the hard questions of ourselves that will help us separate worn-out traditions in our faith from the original principles of our faith that we must never lose and that we must always be faithful to but contextualize for the world in which we live today. How can we approach old truths with fresh eyes? How can we share the old, old story? in a new, new way? How can we make room for new methods while staying true to the original message? But even asking those questions makes people squirm and get uncomfortable. And that's why I say, I I, I know what's coming this week probably. And you know what? I welcome all the thoughts and feedback you give as long as you do one thing. Have enough integrity to put your name on the comment, right? Don't be some anonymous person that pontificates off and tells me everything that was wrong with the sermon, but you don't sign your name to it. That's a coward's way out, church. I'm open to a conversation. I'm learning. I'm on this journey with you. And you can challenge me all you want. Just come with your Bible. Come with the spirit of prophecy, and let's, let's have a dialogue, all right? So care enough to put your name and let's talk, man. 
But let's let God have His way with us. Let's let God be the one directing this church and not any human. And, and, and this really kind of brings me to the last thing that I learned here in this passage when Jesus talks in verse 39, and that's this, for most people, change is difficult. It's uncomfortable. Jesus said people who have drunk the old wine don't like the new wine because they think the old is better even if it may not actually be in reality. How true is that? We get used to something and we don't like change even if the new is better. In fact, we resist change. I mean, it's Newton's law, right? One of his laws of physics. An object at rest does what? Stays at rest unless it's acted upon by a larger force. And then another law is when it's acted upon by a force, it reacts against that force. And we humans are like that when we're confronted with this stuff. Not only do we resist resist the change, but we often characterize the change, now get this with me, as the work of the devil, and we vilify those who are the change agents. And we begin to try to crucify them just like the Jews did Jesus of old. Let's be careful that we don't become guilty of that. Let's have enough discernment to not make an immediate assumption or judgment about something, but say, let's, Jesus, God says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Let's take it, let's say, I don't know what to think. Maybe yeah, maybe no. It worries me a little bit, but let's look at the Bible. Let's look at Spirit of Prophecy and let's let God help us figure it out. Jesus came to shake up the status quo of His day. And it's time, I believe it's time, that we let Him do that for us too. Shake up the status quo. We're too comfortable. We're way too comfortable. Not only does Jesus want to be a part of your story, but He invites you to become a part of His story. You see, Jesus sees potential in you. He sees an awesome creation that He has a plan for and a design and something special that only you can do with the unique gifts and talents and abilities that He's put in your life. And you might not see it in yourself and you might just think, well, I'm just a regular Joe Blow. But guess what? This is what Jesus thinks. In the untutored fisherman, in the publican in the marketplace, in the woman of Samaria, in the common people who heard him gladly, he found what? His new bottles for the new wine. The instrumentalities to be used in the gospel work are those souls who gladly receive the light which God sends them. See, that's talking about every single one of us here. We can be just the regular, ordinary person, but if we will receive the light of the gospel that Jesus said, we will become the new bottles for the new wine of His work in a marvelous way. Dear ones and young people especially, hear this today. That can be you. God is talking about you. God sees you. And He's singled you out. 
and he wants to do something special. No matter what you might feel like you're handicapped with, no matter what challenges, no matter what kinds of maybe bad choices and kind of messes you're trying to dig yourself out of right now, God sees potential in you. Shechem Griffin was born with amniotic band syndrome. This is a condition in which your extremities don't develop properly or naturally. And when he was four, four and, and so his left hand began developing in a very, very irregular way. When he was four years old, he had to have his left hand amputated. Now you can imagine what that might mean to a four year old boy who had a twin brother. And their dream together was to play professional sports for the same team as twin brothers. They were growing up. His brother's name was Shaquille. Football together. And they went through elementary school. And Shaquem, even with his disability, he didn't quit. And he kept trying and kept pressing and just showed determination and grit. And then the University of Central Florida football program noticed the brothers and they played together, Shechem and Shaquille, for the U of, of Central Florida football program. And then the Seattle Seahawks drafted Shaquille into their football team. And Shaquille Griffin began playing Seattle. You see, Seattle Seahawks are my football team. Now, I know I may have a death sentence when I walk out the door with Cowboys people here. I, you know, I mean, I'm not really that much of a fan of football, period. But if I have to have a team, it's got to be the Seattle Seahawks. So anyway, Shaquille Griffin's playing for the Seattle Seahawks. A couple years later, 2018, in the 2018 draft, the Seattle Seahawks drafted Shaquille. the team that his brother, his twin brother, was already playing on, and their dream to play professional football together became a reality. One hand, linebacker playing pro football. Now, this past February, for his positive contribution to pro football and to his positive contribution in his community, and for inspiring young athletes all over the world that they can overcome their disabilities, Shaquem Griffin was named the winner of the Game Changer Award in the NFL Honors. You see, no matter what disadvantages you have, may have been born with, no matter what disadvantages life may have dealt you, you can overcome them. God wants to do that for you. Jesus wants to be the game changer for you. He wants to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time in your story. And so I invite you, won't you make this choice today? I will open my heart to the way Jesus wants to change me and let him be the GOAT, the greatest of all time in my story.
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by this sermon. Next week, we'll continue our journey through Game Changers. So bring a friend, listen, have a conversation, and remember, you're in our prayers.